You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 155, The Battle of Bennington. Last week, we left off with General John Stark's New Hampshire Militia Army marching to occupy Bennington in what is today Vermont, where the Americans maintained a supply depot. At the same time, German Lieutenant Colonel Friedrich Baum led a force of over 1,000 Loyalists and German soldiers detached from Burgoyne's army also to capture Bennington. Alert listeners may have noticed a trend that when two opposing armies try to occupy the same town, a battle usually occurs. And that will be the case today, as the two armies clash in what became known as the Battle of Bennington. As I mentioned last week, Colonel Baum's column moved slowly through the wilderness. They left Fort Miller on the Hudson River on August 11, 1777. Two days later, an advance force of about 50 Indians had reached Cambridge, New York, a small village of a few houses just over 15 miles away. Baum's main column was still in transit. In Bennington, less than 20 miles from Cambridge, General Stark received word of enemy warriors in Cambridge and that they were the vanguard of an enemy column. Stark deployed about 200 men under the command of Lieutenant Colonel William Gregg to reconnoiter the enemy and intercept any advancing scout parties. That evening, August 13th, Gregg's force set up camp at a grist mill just outside of Cambridge. The next morning, Baum's column was up before dawn and on the march. By around 8 a.m. on the 14th, the advance of his column had reached Cambridge. Gregg's patriots opened fire on the enemy, but quickly retreated into the woods before doing any real damage. Baum reported only one Indian warrior wounded. As the British column repaired the bridge that had been destroyed, an optimistic Colonel Baum said that he had made contact with the enemy and that he continued to advance on Bennington with an expected arrival in two days. In response to Baum's request for reinforcements, which had been sent several days earlier when he received his first intelligence about the size of the enemy, General Burgoyne had ordered the deployment of another German, Lieutenant Colonel Heinrich von Breimann, at the head of about 600 more Brunswicker soldiers. Breimann's column, however, did not leave until August 15th. The slow-moving relief column was on its way, but would not catch up with Baum's column for several days. Baum continued on toward Bennington. He was not certain the enemy was as large as his intelligence suggested, and even if it was, they were just local militia, who would probably not stand and fight. 
waiting for reinforcements would only give the enemy time to remove the supplies at Bennington that Baum wanted to capture. As Baum advanced that day, his men ran into another minor skirmish with the militia. One Mohawk chief who had led too far in advance of the lines was killed. Baum had about a hundred Native American warriors with him, but relations were not good. The Indians tended to be in the forefront and took most of the casualties. They also frequently stopped to loot. What booty they did not want themselves, they often tried to sell to the army. Baum, however, did not have cash to pay them. Indians who had captured most of the horses so far simply drove them off or killed them rather than let their allies have them for free. Baum's force continued to advance, but quickly ran into more of the enemy. American Colonel Gregg had sent word to General Stark that they had made contact with the enemy. Stark deployed more soldiers to advance and challenged the German offensive. He also called for more reinforcements from the Continentals posted at Manchester. By the end of the day on August 14th, Colonel Baum had placed his men and artillery in a defensive position on a hill just east of Cambridge. The two sides both sent out skirmishers to probe the enemy lines and determine the position and strength of the enemy. Late in the day, and continuing all day on the 15th, a downpour kept both armies contained, and both were waiting for reinforcements anyway. While there were no major clashes on the 15th, the Americans reported killing about 30 Indian warriors. The British speculated that the Americans were targeting the Indians for revenge. The memory of Jane McRae's murder and the slaughter of other locals was still fresh in everyone's mind. Most of the Indians who were not killed thought this was an opportune time to go home. They had more loot than they could carry. Their allies were not interested in buying any of their prizes. And they had no interest in hanging around for a major battle where they might be used as cannon fodder by their allies. Those that did remain were discouraged and remained behind with the baggage. At the same time, most of the Indians were leaving. Local loyalists added more than 100 volunteers to supplement Baum's forces. On the other side, General Stark pulled in more of his own militia. He had received a group of Stockbridge Indians from Massachusetts who had marched out along with other Massachusetts militia and Continentals led by Colonel Seth Warner to support the New Hampshire militia. When the weather finally cleared on the morning of August 16th, the two armies prepared for battle. Baum had put his German dragoons on high ground, forming a redoubt at the top of a hill. His cannons covered the bridge that they would need for their retreat back to Cambridge if necessary. He deployed his few remaining Indians as well as several hundred Loyalist volunteers in a second defensive redoubt further to the south. This second redoubt was somewhat removed and isolated from the main force and would be the first target of attack by the Americans. General Stark had held a council of war with his colonels on the night of August 14th to develop a plan of attack. Because the 15th was so rainy, they waited until the 16th to put their plan into action. Stark divided his army into four divisions. He knew that he outnumbered the enemy and hoped to hit the entrenched defenders from multiple sides at once. 
Lieutenant Colonel Moses Nichols would lead 250 New Hampshire soldiers on a march around the enemy's left flank so that they could attack the German redoubt from the northeast. At the same time, Vermont Colonel Samuel Herrick would take 300 soldiers around the enemy's right flank, ford the Wallamoosack River, and attack the enemy from the south. Colonels Thomas Stickney and David Hobart would take more New Hampshire militia and directly assault the Loyalist Redoubt from the southeast. General Stark would personally lead a 300-man force to storm the German redoubt in a frontal assault from the southeast as well. By the afternoon of the 16th, his men were ready for battle. General Stark gave a short speech to motivate his men. He pointed to the enemy and, referencing his wife, said something to the effect of, There are the Redcoats and Loyalists. They are ours, or Molly Stark sleeps a widow tonight. The attack was set to begin at 3 p.m. Colonel Nichols made a last-minute request for reinforcements and received another hundred men. Since Nichols had the longest march, the orders were for him to attack when in position. The sound of the gunfire would be the signal for the other divisions to attack. Nichols and Herrick both hit the German redoubt with a sudden opening volley. Firing on both sides opened up. Stark described it as the hottest engagement he had ever witnessed like a continuous clap of thunder. The Americans outnumbered the Germans, but the Germans held the high ground and were backed by cannons. The intense fire lasted only for a matter of minutes before the Americans charged the redoubt and engaged in a vicious hand-to-hand combat with the defenders. The Germans broke ranks and fled down the hill with the enemy in pursuit. The battle devolved into a chaotic single combat between men fighting with swords, bayonets, and using their muskets as clubs. Within a half an hour, the German redoubt had collapsed, with all of its defenders either dead or prisoners. In the Loyalist redoubt, about 250 Loyalists were entrenched on high ground, led by Lieutenant Colonel John Peters of the Queen's Loyal Rangers. Stafford's Americans approached the redoubt through a ravine that prevented the enemy from seeing their approach. When the Americans attacked, they were practically inside the redoubt already. Colonel Stafford ordered the Americans to charge, but was shot down in the first volley. He soon, however, realized that he was just hit in the foot and stood back up to continue to rally his men. The fighting at the redoubt was some of the fiercest. These loyalists and patriots were often men who had grown up together in the region and knew each other well. One of the men who shot Stafford later said that he knew him personally, but still took careful aim to drop him. He was stunned when Stafford stood up again after he thought he had killed his former friend. As Colonel Peters rallied his loyalist defenders, he heard an enemy shout, Peters, you damn Tory, I have got you, as he bayoneted Peters in the chest. Peters recognized his attacker as his old schoolmate and now Patriot Militia Captain Jeremiah Post. Peters fired his musket at Post at point-blank range, killing him instantly. With the German Dragoon and Loyalist Redoubts overrun, General Stark could focus almost all of his divisions on the remaining central defensive position under the command of Colonel Baum himself. 
Baum's remaining Brunswickers were heavily outnumbered and quickly running out of ammunition. They realized they could not hold out for reinforcements. Baum ordered a desperate charge into enemy lines in an attempt to break out and retreat. The Americans did not give way, leading to more hand-to-hand combat with swords, bayonets, and muskets used as clubs in a desperate struggle for survival. Colonel Baum took a bullet during this fighting and collapsed with a mortal wound. The remaining Germans, still alive, had to surrender, with only a few scattered soldiers escaping into the woods. By 5 p.m., the battle was over, except for the Americans hunting down a few enemy soldiers hiding in the woods. Baum's loyalist commander, Philip Skeen, had left before the battle began, trying to find von Bremen's relief column and get them to hurry forward. The night before, Bremen had camped about seven miles from Cambridge. After the battle, Bremen would take criticism for not reaching Baum in time to support him. Many historians have pointed out that Baum and Bremen did not like each other, and that Bremen might have deliberately moved slowly in order to let Baum fail. But it had taken Baum three days to march as far as he did. Bremen made the same march in two days. His men were similarly clothed in a way that was not suited for the hot wilderness marching, and several large field cannons with him had to be hauled over hills and across streams. Remember also that the 15th, when he left, was a day of hard driving rain, so hard that the two sides did not even attempt battle. Bremen's relief column had to march through that same storm. Still, a few miles from the battle scene, Bremen met up with Skeen and a few other Tories who had escaped battle. Skeen told Bremen that the battle was still raging and that he should hurry his reinforcements forward to the battle. Bremen began to deploy his soldiers when a group of armed men on horses rode toward them. Skeen told Bremen they were loyalists, but it turned out they were not. The men fired on the Germans, killing Bremen's horse and wounding the colonel. Angered, Bremen ordered his men forward and brought up his field cannons. Most of the American troops were still miles away, engaged in mopping up operations. And by that I mostly mean they were looting bound supplies as well as the dead and wounded enemy. The small force under Colonel Herrick that had engaged with Bremen was far outnumbered and began to retreat back toward the main army. Since the Americans were mostly armed with rifles, they could inflict devastating fire on the pursuing Germans, while keeping enough distance that the Germans armed with muskets could not effectively return fire. Bremen's officers were particular targets for the American riflemen, and took a disproportionate number of the casualties. With the superior numbers and the use of artillery, the German relief force moved forward. Miles away, a messenger reached General Stark to inform him of the enemy relief column headed his way. Stark had to scurry to reorganize his militia. He had not taken many casualties in the first battle, but many of his men were either off looting or removing prisoners back away from the battlefield. His army had lost all of its organization, and he now faced a new incoming army of unknown size. Colonel Seth Warner had arrived on the scene ahead of his reinforcements, who were still marching from Manchester. Warner worked with General Stark to set up skirmish lines with the soldiers available. 
Hearing the firing, more militia dropped whatever they were doing and rushed back to the sound of battle, giving the Americans more troops. Even so, the Germans still outnumbered the American defenders. Bremen detached a regiment under Major von Barner to turn the American right flank. As the Germans attempted to flank the American line, Warner's 130 Continentals and another 200 Rangers arrived at the battle to push back the Germans. Bremen then sent in another several hundred men to flank the Americans, but found they could not do so. After several hours of fighting, the German relief force realized that Baum's forces were already gone. They had taken heavy casualties themselves and were in danger of being overrun. By 8 p.m., the sun was setting. Bremen ordered his soldiers to retreat. They abandoned their cannons, their carts, even their wounded, as their men fled the field. A third of his force was killed or captured. Bremen escaped with his wounds and marched with his remaining force back toward Burgoyne's army. The battle had been a brutal one, especially for the Germans. Nearly all of Baum's army was killed or captured. Von Bremen's relief column lost a third of their men. Many soldiers had fought to the death. In total, the Americans took over 700 prisoners, including 30 officers. Only nine of Baum's soldiers escaped capture. Another 200 or so Loyalists were also killed or captured. Native American casualties were not recorded, but were a high proportion of those involved as well. Of the nearly 2,000 men committed to battle, Burgoyne's forces took a nearly 50% casualty rate. Instead of capturing much-needed weapons, supplies, and horses, they had lost hundreds of irreplaceable soldiers, as well as a few of their cannons. By contrast, the Americans had suffered only about 30 killed and 40 or 50 wounded. Among the dead was Seth Warner's brother, Jesse. The Americans treated the Germans and the few British regulars captured as prisoners of war. Many wounded went untreated for days, and some reported a few prisoners killed by their guards. But most of the Germans capable of walking were marched back to Bennington, after a few days, the Americans marched the captives to Boston, where they were held as prisoners of war. The Indians and Tories did not fare quite as well. I've read no accounts of Indian prisoners. Any of them wounded on the battlefield were likely dispatched where they lay. The Loyalist prisoners were considered criminals. The level of hatred against former friends and neighbors, sometimes even relatives, had reached such intensity that there was no respect for prisoners of war. Many of them were marched back to Bennington to be tried as traitors and hanged. There were also quite a few accounts of large numbers of prisoners being tomahawked or shot in the back of the head rather than being taken anywhere. Some were actually dragged to death behind horses. General Stark became a national hero. Patriots toasted his victory across the country. New Hampshire's assembly awarded their hero general a new suit. Less than two months later, the Continental Congress finally commissioned Stark as a brigadier general in the Continental Army. Stark's army did not fare quite as well. His 1,500-man force remained in the area for a few weeks. During that time, a measles epidemic swept through the camp. 
about half of his force either died or was left unfit for duty as a result. For the British, the battle was devastating. It meant the loss of most of Burgoyne's remaining Indian auxiliaries. Those who survived returned home. The loss of Brunswickers and Loyalists eliminated about one-sixth of his total army, soldiers that he could not replace nor afford to lose. The two surviving commanders on the British side, Colonel von Bremen and Philip Skeem, plained each other for the loss. Skeen was highly critical of how slow Bremen moved to relieve Colonel Baum. Had he arrived earlier in the day, he could have provided the necessary reinforcements. Bremen attacked Skeen for telling him that Baum still needed rescuing, even though Baum's army had already been defeated. Bremen said that, had he known that, he never would have taken his men into battle against a superior enemy. Following Bennington, Burgoyne, who had up until this time used Skeen as a trusted advisor on local issues, no longer sought his counsel. Skeen and Colonel von Bremen both remained with the army, though, as it continued its march south. Next week, however, we're going to step away from Burgoyne once again to cover another event that happened in August 1777 down in Virginia, the Siege of Fort Henry. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to Trey Nance for his continued support of the show as an Alexander Hamilton Club supporter on Patreon. I also want to thank a new supporter at the Hamilton Club level this week, George Davis. I very much appreciate your contributions to help make this show viable and to keep this important story free for everyone. This week, we covered the critical battle of Bennington in what is today Vermont. Now, I know last week I said the British pretty much stayed out of New England after abandoning Boston and except for a few coastal raids, as well as their occupation of part of Rhode Island. And now, a week later, I'm talking about a major battle, guess where? New England. Now, to be fair, though, the British still considered Bennington and the surrounding area to be part of New York, not New England. 
This battle also did confirm for the British that any focus on New England before pacifying the rest of the continent was a bad idea. The Battle of Bennington was also an important example of why the Patriots' home field advantage was so important in this war. Burgoyne, the British general, had a large, well-armed professional army. But whenever he lost a soldier in battle or to disease or desertion, he could not replace that soldier. Possibly a British commander might hope to get reinforcements many months later at huge expense to the government, but for the most part, their armies were irreplaceable. By contrast, after the Patriot Army fled Fort Ticonderoga, the Continental Army was defeated and shrinking. But home field advantage meant that the Americans could replace or supplement that army almost overnight simply by calling up the militia under a charismatic leader like General Stark. The arms and men were always ready and waiting if the men could be convinced to go. Bennington also spelled the beginning of the end for the British as well. Or, well, at least the beginning of the beginning of the end. The British defeat left General Burgoyne without a large chunk of his army and without the supplies and supply lines that he needed for his main army. It was also a great morale booster for the Americans and contributed greatly to recruitment. This would eventually contribute to the British defeat at Saratoga, and that American victory really turned the war on its head by encouraging the French to join the fight openly on the side of the Americans. And France joining the war is what really spelled the end for British rule in America. The Americans simply did not live to fight another day. In this case, they had defeated professional soldiers in the field and held their ground. It was a solid, unqualified American victory. For the people of Vermont in particular, the battle is still revered. April 16th is still considered Battle Day in Vermont. The people of Vermont fought this battle with their neighbors in the middle of their own struggle for independence from their neighbors. Vermont had just issued its new constitution days after Burgoyne captured Fort Ticonderoga, politicians had to put aside setting up a government until the following year because of all this military unrest. I hope to cover the setup of that new independent government of Vermont in a future episode. The Battle of Bennington was a fight over the control of Bennington, since that was where the British were trying to go. But the battle was not actually fought in Bennington, but rather several miles away. The war memorial that stands today in Bennington is about 10 miles from the actual battlefield. But regardless of geographic disputes, the historic importance of the battle should not be forgotten. Now, there are lots of books that cover the battle as part of the overall Saratoga campaign. But if you want a book that focuses just on this battle, you may want this week's book recommendation. It is called The Battle of Bennington. Soldiers and Civilians, by Michael P. Gabriel. It's a relatively short book, only 130 pages total, but it's full of interesting details about the battle and the men who fought it. The author, Dr. Gabriel, is a professor at Kutztown University. He published this book in 2012 and has written a number of other books on early American history, including one about General Montgomery. So, if you're interested, check out 
The Battle of Bennington, Soldiers and Civilians by Michael Gabriel. My online recommendation this week is a free ebook on archive.org. It is called The Battle of Bennington by Henry Davis Hall. This also is a very short book, even shorter than the book recommendation. It's about 70 pages, just covering the battle itself, and was first published in 1896. Since it's in the public domain, you can read it for free online or download it at no cost for offline reading. As always, you can search for The Battle of Bennington on archive.org, or I have included a direct link to the book on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. As a reminder, my website also includes a list of all former book and online recommendations if you're trying to look something up much later. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.